You know, we, are, we are people of the end times. We are an end times community. We are people who are inter-advental people, people for whom stand in the times between the time when Christ first came in flesh and bone to grace this earth and to show us His ways and to die for us and to rise again and to send His Spirit. But we also eagerly await the advent when He comes again and the opportunity we have week in and week out to stand as um, an end times community, as an inter-advental people, as people who have experienced in some form the beginning and the inauguration of God's kingdom, but are yet to experience the fullness of it, the gift that we have to be people who practice for eternity. You know, we are a signpost. We are a shadow. We are a, a kind of version here now on earth of what will be. And it is a glorious thing that we get to do in being God's church on planet earth. You know, we don't just come and sing songs on a Sunday morning because we love to sing songs. If you do, there's plenty of other singing groups out there that you could go and be a part of. But there is a depth, a spiritual depth, a kingdom depth, an eternal depth to what we do as God's gathered people to shout to the Lord with all of the heavens and all of the earth and to be in awe and wonder at the work of His hands. Now, this is, a, this is holy ground, not because the carpet's special. In fact, it stinks half the time. It gets rained on and all the rest of it. But we as His people, we are holy ground. We are the indwelt people of the King Most High. This is holy ground. And Sunday upon Sunday and every other moment in between that we get to worship Him is holy ground. And I'm grateful for this mob. Aren't they wonderful? And all of our other people that lead us in worship. And just two weeks ago, Gav put his hand up. He heard that there was a, um, we didn't have someone to lead worship today. And he just put his hand up and said, I'll do it. And uh, I'm grateful that you did, brother. Uh, what a blessing. Thank you. Uh, you can all take a seat, would you? Uh, you'll get tired um, if you stay up here for the whole time today. Because my notes for some reason seem a little bit thicker than usual. Uh, Bretto. <laughs> Brett has been busting me for the best part of the last 10 years for preaching too long. And uh, dare I say, I'll be called into the principal's office perhaps once again. When the Lord wants to speak, He will speak. And uh, He just chooses wordy people sometimes. <laughs> uh, it's all good. It's all good. Well, if you were with us last week, you would have been here for the sweet smell of onions that were cooking. Did you enjoy that? You would have been here for the bottle of water that I placed under your seat to remind us that we have an appetite for God, that we are people called to hunger and thirst. Um, but today I haven't given you such luxuries. Um, from here on out, it is BYO cooked onions and BYO water um, if you want to enjoy uh, those things in church together. Well, it's been deeply encouraging to me this week to hear how God has been at work um, in so many people's lives, um, how he has been speaking similarly to people in our community, um, how he's um, shaping things not just within this community here at Carring Bar, uh, but also across our Kingsway family to a more vastly unified desperation for God. We had our elders meeting here on um, Wednesday night with our Sea Change elders and our Carring Bar elders 
And the testimony of what God is doing through his church is not just a story for here. It is something, a unified work that God is doing through his church and not just with Sea Change and Caring Bar and Phnom Penh and what we call our Kingsway family of churches and not just in our network of churches of Christ that we are a part of, but I believe globally, you know, there is a deepening hunger and thirst for what God is doing. For the simple things of faith, I believe, to be our orientation and our anchor. There's a growing hunger, a, a, a more vastly broadening unity around God's kingdom coming in our lives and in the communities that we inhabit and in this great nation of Australia. And as I've alluded to in other uh, forms, that the, vision, the work of vision is not something that I am solely responsible for by virtue of, of my role being your pastor. Uh, but it is the work of all of us as we collectively follow Jesus, as we obey his spirit together, as we discern his voice in community. You know, what we bring of him and from him to the table of this Fellowship. Vision is about promoting and continuing the activity of God that is already among us and embodying his vision for us both personally and for us corporately. You know, vision is an us thing. It's not a me thing. It's not just a the pastor thing. It's not just a Brett thing. It's not just a Ruth thing. It's, it's an us thing. What God is doing among us is the work of all of us, as we follow him, as we hear his voice, as we seek him collectively together. So in this light, it is of no surprise to me then that there has been far-reaching eagerness for this word around hunger and thirst. And I'm not shocked to keep hearing this week that there is a deep resonance within the hearts of people in our community for this word. I mean, I can see a growing and collective distaste for the shallow, for the status quo, for complacency. I can sense a rising disdain for the stagnant water of the old wells that I spoke about last week. And I am convinced that in our hunger and thirst for the deep things of God, as our appetite for his power to be made manifest grows, as we yearn for Jesus to bust a move in these days, that we will indeed see salvation. That we will see more and more people being baptized into the family of God. That we will see people discipled into maturity. I believe that we will see people and we will bear witness to miracles of healing, that we will celebrate hearts and minds that have been set free through nothing but the power of God's Spirit. We will witness new communities of faith emerge from within us, that we will see young people rising to their call in Christ and to take up their place as runners of the baton of faith but Jesus' mission for the generations to come. I'm curious to know if you're up for that. I mean, you don't have to put your hand up and you don't have to stand and give me an amen, but I'm curious to know, are you up for that as we hunger and thirst to see the power of God manifest 
in such ways that we see salvation and baptisms and maturity in faith and miraculous healings and new communities emerging. Are we up for that as we hunger and thirst for Jesus? If you've got your Bible handy, I want you to uh, not do the holy flip because here's one we prepared earlier. Just past halfway in your Bible uh, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Today, as we explore God's Word together, I want us to see in the Scriptures that we are an exile people, that this world is not our home. Yet at the same time, I want us to see that we have an incredibly unique calling within it. And as we do, I want to remind you that we are a people of promise. The promise that we have an ever-present, all-powerful, all-knowing, true-to-his-word God who is with us always, and he is with us in always. Now let me pray as we open the word together. Father, we thank you that uh, your word is alive among us, that you speak with clarity through the text of the Bible. We pray this morning as we open it and as we seek words of truth and wisdom in our life that you would speak clearly to us. Father, the instruction of your word, the invitation of your word would rise this morning, that your voice would be heard and my silly jokes and stories and all of those other in-between bits would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But what would remain would be the revelation of Jesus through your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Jeremiah 29, verse 1 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the craftsmen and the metal workers, had all departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hand of Elisar, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So at this point in time, let's just pause here for a sec. At this point in time, Babylon had already invaded Judah and Jerusalem on two other occasions in 605 BC and in 598 BC. And each time that they had gone in and invaded, they had scooped up a bunch of captives with them and shipped them off to a land that was not their own, taken them to the land of Babylon. And the top echelons of society were always the first ones to be carted off. But yet there remained a sizable population in Jerusalem and Judah, but they soon would also be conquered and carried away into this land called Babylon as exiles. The prophet Jeremiah, he was tasked by God with writing to the nation of Israel while they were living in Babylon, while they were in exile, while they were in a place that was not their own, while they had been forcibly removed from their home, 
Jeremiah is writing this letter to encourage them in the things of God. And this is what it says. This is what God says to the people in exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 4, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant, plant out some gardens and eat of their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may, may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know, and you'll know this one, it's probably on your fridge, always out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. To give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back. To the place from which I have sent you into exile. I mean, have you ever found yourself in an environment where you have um, felt like a fish out of water? Where you perhaps didn't know the protocols or ways to be in this place? It reminded me, and I watched it this week, I was going to show you, but I saved you the trouble of Mr. Bean. Anyone remember Mr. Bean? And Mr. Bean met the Queen. You remember this one? He's like fluffing about and he gets his zipper stuck and he's flossing his teeth, all this kind of stuff. He ends up headbutting the Queen. I'm thinking, man, this is like, this is like me. I find myself in environments where I often don't know the protocols and how to be. I mean, perhaps around people who are vastly different from you and you are just really unsure how to behave. I mean, maybe this is just a me thing where I'm often not on my best behaviour. Uh, among the hats that I wear, uh, one of them is the president of the PNC of Grays Point Public School, uh, where our kids uh, go to school. And at the end of last year, there was an awards ceremony that I was invited to attend and to have the honour of handing out a High Achievers Award to one of the students in the school. Now I arrived at awards day and I, I grabbed a seat in the front row and put my water bottle there and my keys and my uh, phone, thought this looks like a, you know easy access kind of seat for my moment when I need uh, to get up. And while I was sitting there rehearsing the, you know, the award handshake, it's like shake it and then give it, you know, I wanted to make sure I got that bit 
right and I didn't give it and then, you know, I was rehearsing what I needed to do and the smile for the photo, one of the assistant principals tapped me on the shoulder and pointed to a cluster of chairs that were up on the stage and let me know that my name was on one of those chairs. I had a reserved seat, I think for the first time in my life. I don't think I've ever had a reserved seat. This was a little bit special. When I was at school, a mob up the front were called the official party. You know, when the assembly started, they would say, all rise for the official party. We'd all stand up like plebs. We'd watch the official party roll in. And here I am in this moment as part of the official party. I had left the land of the commoner and had finally made it. It didn't take long, however, for me to start becoming acutely aware that on that stage, I was quite unlike the others. I had entered a realm that was seemingly very foreign to me. And this became no more apparent than when the Honourable Mark Speakman came and took his seat right in front of me. I was in the second row. I, you know, they, I don't think they'd let me in the front row. And I was impressed by his crisp suit and his shiny shoes. And then also then another uh, man of great notoriety within the upper echelons of the Shire. I didn't quite know him, but I knew he was special based on also the fresh threads that he was donning, appropriate nonetheless for the occasion. And there I was, in my T-shirt, my board shorts, and a pair of thongs. <laughs> in fact, here's a picture I took for the gram. Rocky, there's a photo, I think, in the preaching slides thing. <laughs> there's Mr. Speakman just off here to the, the right. Again, not doing what I should have been doing, taking a photo... And I think Rocky's just back there. He'd just got an award, so I thought, why not get a selfie? Mr. Speakman and Rocky, all the rest of it. Anyway, not doing what I was meant to be doing. And the caption on this reads, got to sit in the fancy chairs with all the grand poobars today. Even wore my best shorts and teach for the occasion. I tagged Mark Speakman in the, in the photo and called him a legend. And uh, Mr. Speakman replied, incredible fundraising effort by your PNC. He mustn't have been too miffed by my board shorts and t-shirt and thongs. See, it was at that moment and at that morning while I decided my outfit for such a considerable day, I needed a Jeremiah in my life. I needed someone to give me a word from the Lord on how to be when entering a land that is not my own. I needed instruction on how to behave while being a resident of a moment and a place and a people that were visibly very different to me. Except the dance teacher. She was wearing a singlet. That's a whole nother level down. <laughs> you can get rid of that photo now. Thanks, Rock. If you're taking notes, the title of this message is Living Hungry and Thirsty While Living in Exile. It's a long title, I know, but none of you are actually taking notes, so it doesn't really matter. Living hungry and thirsty for God. Living hungry and thirsty for the purposes of God while living in exile. 
And while my moment of occupying an official moment on stage among the grand poobars, in which I felt and looked out of place, I must make the point that it does not compare one iota to that of Israel's exile from Jerusalem to Babylon in its severity and in its consequence. It serves, however, as a tale, an allegory, if you will, that we as Jesus followers in this world are like I was in that moment, that we are different, that we are for a while in a place that is not our home. We are sojourners, that we are nomads, that we are wanderers, that indeed as scripture makes clear and as we'll see soon, we are living as exiles in this world. I mean, maybe you're thinking, Dave, surely though we're not in exile any longer. I mean, isn't exile like an Old Testament thingy-majiggy? Isn't exile what Adam and Eve experienced when God punted them from the Garden of Eden? Isn't, isn't exile therefore a, a metaphor for the broken relationship that God has had with humanity because of our sin? I mean, isn't, isn't exile what the Israelites experienced while they lived in Egypt? You know, isn't that the place that was not their own and they were in exile under the oppression of Pharaoh and his empire? I mean, they were delivered from that, right? Set free from the bondage of slavery, of sin. I mean, the people of Israel didn't live in exile in Babylon forever, right? We read in the scripture that it was only going to last 70 years, in which, in fact, it did. It only lasted 70 years. They made it back to the promised land, didn't they? The place that God had promised them. I mean, hasn't our separation from God, hasn't our exile from God been resolved in Jesus? Are we not free from the land of Egypt? Are we no longer residents of captivity to sin now because of Jesus' death and resurrection? Hasn't our exile been resolved in Jesus? Isn't our spiritual exile over now through putting our faith in him? I mean, the overwhelming answer to this is a resounding yes, to which you ought not be surprised. And if I had have said anything otherwise, you should run for the hills. The problem of spiritual exile that humanity faced because of sin and rebellion against God has indeed in fullness found its answer in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of his spirit to lead us into freedom and new life. In Jesus, we have indeed been set free from slavery to old ways of being. As Paul preached to the church in Antioch in Acts 13, 38 and 39, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this, uh, that this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. It's true, everyone who believes in Jesus, who puts their faith in him, is no longer in exile from God. 
is no longer living outside of the garden, is no longer stuck in the land of captivity in Egypt, is no longer living in Babylon because they have been set free in Christ. Paul is clear on this matter of freedom in his writing to the Colossians. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated, exiled is the word. Once you were in exile from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and without accusation. Friends, we have been brought home from exile. We have been set free because of him. This is the gospel. This is the greatest news humanity has ever heard. Yet, why is it that so often you and I feel like we are fish out of water in this world? Why why does it feel like at work where the odd one's out? Why does it feel like when we're at school that we're the odd one's out? Why does it feel like we're wearing the wrong clothes to the official thing? I mean, there's no denying that we are physically, tangibly right here in this world. We are materially present in space and time. But why is it that so often this just doesn't feel like our home? So Jesus, right before he's dragged before the authorities and put to death, he prays what is known as the high priestly prayer. It is the cry of his heart for his disciples to know the Father, to remain in him, to carry on his work as sent ones into the world and to transform it with his love. In his prayer for us, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Jesus understands the exilic nature of being a follower of him in the world. Just as I am not of the world. I mean, there's a whole message there on Jesus being in exile from heaven, coming to earth, living incarnationally. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. And Jesus prayed this because he knew what it was like to feel like an exile in the world. Two chapters earlier, he's reminding the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it has hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In Paul, he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. Which suggests to me that my citizenship that my passport doesn't belong to the Federation of Australia. Are we a federation? I don't know. To Australia. But my citizenship, your citizenship, is in heaven. We belong to a different place. We read in, in Hebrews 11 the, the roll call of the heroes of the faith that they died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Are you getting, are you getting the picture that we are exiles in this world? Peter, in his first letter, opens with this, just in case we thought that exile was just an Old Testament thingy-majiggy and doesn't apply to us now. Peter is writing to the diaspora, to the, the churches that had been scattered. He says this, those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He writes to them in chapter 2, 11. And I want us to do at some point, side note, uh, the book of 1 Peter this year. It is a book written to people like us living in exile on how we are to be in this world, which funnily enough is my message today, but I'm not going to go through 1 Peter. We're going back to Jeremiah. Heads up, spoiler alert. He writes this in chapter 2, verse 11, just as a precursor. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If Peter bookends his letter, he begins it with, you are exiles and sojourners, and he finishes it off with this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon hasn't been a thing for literally hundreds of years. But Peter is still addressing the church. He's still writing to us as those who are living in Babylon, who are living in exile. The Word of God is clear that this world is not our home. But alas, here we are. Or does that mean that we just sit idly by? In this world now? Do we just twiddle our thumbs and ride this earth as our temporal home wave until Jesus returns again? Or is there a way of being as exiles in this world that God is asking you and I to be? Is there a posture of heart and soul toward this world that God is inviting you and I to? Is there a call upon us as exiles, as strangers and citizens of another place while we take up residence here in this temporal home? I mean, the answer to all of that is yes. There is. I mean, Jeremiah 29 was not written to us, but it was written for us, in the same way Peter writing to the churches he wrote in his first letter did not write to us here at the church on number nine, Resolution Drive, North Caringbar, but they were and are spirit-inspired words for us. And it's to these I want us to return our attention as I seek to encourage you this morning and encourage me as I have been encouraged this week in this, that to, uh, in this world we are to hunger and thirst for God's purposes in these days. Uh, if you want to dive back into Jeremiah 29, feel free, but I'm going to be speaking around it rather than back through it. So as we have established, Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah interacting with the people of Israel who had been removed from their home 
and taken to Babylon. And there were false prophets who were trying to tell those who were taken into exile, hey guys, look, it's not as bad as it seems. Like, they were the positivity guys. You know, I know it's a little uncomfy and a little inconvenient right now that we're in Babylon, but just hang in there for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, look, a month or two at worst, and, you know, God is going to have us back into the promised land. He's, he's going to save us really soon, guys. So what we need to do is we need to just batten down the hatches. We need to ride out this storm. We need to disengage. We need to wait this out. Because we know that God is going to restore us to a place of power and a place of dominance once again. He's going to take us back to our land and destroy the Babylonians. We just need to bunker down and wait. Jeremiah is writing from the Lord, this is not from me. This is not what's actually going to happen. You are going to be here for a while. 70 years in fact. So let me tell you how to live faithfully in exile. See, the way that exile often worked, and in this case did work, is that the Babylonians went into Jerusalem and they take most or many of the cultural elite, they would take their best and their brightest. I mean, you see this repeated through history, then the Khmer Rouge, that they did the same thing to eliminate a culture, take the educated, take the people of wealth and notoriety, and if we can get them, we can eradicate their culture. And they take the best and the brightest, they take them to their homeland and assimilate them into their culture, knowing in time that their culture will be erased. They will eventually lose their distinctiveness as they assimilate into the culture around them. I mean, what Jeremiah is saying is that the way forward as an exile in Babylon is not assimilation. Do not become like them. As Paul similarly reminds us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't become like them. Don't slip so easily into their way of being and their way of living that you lose the way that you were called to live. On the other hand, what can happen in the context of, of exile is in fact the opposite. Not the risk that people would assimilate into the culture, but they would retaliate against it. That they would try using whatever power or means possible to dominate those around them. Or they'd do something else. They'd play the victim card, becoming passive-aggressive throwing tantrums in the corner. This isn't fair. I'm not playing. Folding their arms as they watch. No, I'm not doing this. I'm not taking part. I'm not playing. Living from a place of entitlement and rejecting responsibility while seeking out a life of comfort. Uh, pastor and cultural guru Mark Sayers, he uh, runs a podcast called Rebuilders, um, and he is an incredible uh, pastor, theologian, and cultural exegete in the Australian culture. 
pastors a church called Red Church down in Melbourne, listen to his podcast, Rebuilders. He speaks to these postures in a recent podcast called When the Church is Made Powerful in Weakness. Fascinating listen. And he calls these two postures, either the, the aggressive one where instead of assimilating, we try and retaliate against the culture, or if we don't do that, we become um, like people in the corner, kids, teenagers in the corner going, this sucks, I'm not playing. He calls these one of two different ways of being. He calls them the empirical self and the infantile self. Both of which are insufficient to redeem the culture that we live in. That us trying to flex our collective muscle and go, hey, we're on the churches. Oh, so we're on the fringe. We know we're the church, but hey, we're powerful. We've got buildings. We've got money. We've got the answers. We've got God. So listen to what we have to say. We go out all guns blazing in this empirical, empirical, that's the right word, like we have power and we retaliate against the culture or alternatively we can become like the teenagers and you guys know what I'm talking about, they'll just go, mum and dad, I'm not doing that, I'm not taking part, this sucks, this is boring, this is unfair, why am I even here? I don't belong here and withdraw. See, the invitation that Jeremiah is giving is neither an invitation to assimilation into the culture, nor conquest of it through human power, nor victimization played out through passive aggression and dummy spits. And the same applies to us. Neither of these options are the way forward for us as we find ourselves in culture today. That as the people of God living as exiles in this world, we are not to assimilate into the culture around us. Nor are we to assume a posture of power nor entitlement. The invitation that God is extending to the Jews now living in Babylon could be summed up in the vision statement that we, as a Kingsway family of churches, shape our mission around. To be inspired by God to live differently. To be inspired by God to live differently. I mean, the question the Father led me to ask of this scripture was how did the kingdom of God advance during these years of exile? I mean, now they're 70 years, everything was taken, their homes destroyed, their temple gone, their, the whole lot. I mean, how did the kingdom of God proliferate? How did the kingdom of God survive this 70 years of exile? Great question. Thanks, God. Which I rephrased the question in my words that made sense to me. And it sounded more like this. What was the secret in the survival source that enabled God's mission to outlast, outwit, and outplay through the Jewish people for 70 years, literally generations as they lived in exile. What was it about them? What was it about their values? What was it about their practices? What was it about their posture? That in that time and in that land ensured God's purposes and plan would prevail through them. I mean, what can we take from their example? What leaf can we take from their book as we live as exiles in this world? And Jeremiah tells them, guys, I, 
I want you. And he's like, get this. He probably felt maybe a little bit embarrassed maybe of maybe how plain God's word was at this moment. You know, it wasn't like this enormous God dream revelation that is delivered. It's quite practical. I want you to build a house and I want you to live in it. I want you to plant a garden around your house. I want you to put some tomatoes in there. I want you to put some capsicums, maybe some green beans. I want you to plant some fruit trees. I want you to plant a garden and I, you know, I, I want you to eat from the garden, the produce of what grows around your house. You know, I, I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. I want you to um, enjoy your grandkids. That's how long you're going to be here. Not only that, I want you to seek the welfare of this city, to which he's probably starting to get a little bit kickback. The build a house, plant a garden, have kids. Sweet, everyone's on board. And he says, I, I want you to seek the welfare of this city, of these enemies, of the people who have captured you and taken everything from you. I want you to, I want you to pray for their welfare. I want... I want you to pray for the peace of those who have done this to you. He goes on to tell him, I want you to seek God in a land and in a place that is so godless. I want you to seek the one true God, not the king of the moment, to seek God with all your heart. I mean... This is quite cheeky. This is quite subversive. This is quite against the grain, quite counter-cultural. Build houses, plant gardens, have kids, pray for the city, pray for its welfare, seek me with everything you have. These are the instructions given to people in exile. And I want to close with four observations of God's invitation to them and briefly, and I mean briefly, connect them to what we as a community have articulated as what we want to prioritize, as what we want to fight for, as what we want to give our prayer to, as what we want to give our effort into, what we want to give our energy and our finances, and our attention, and our hard work, and our resources toward in these days as we live in exile. So what led God's kingdom to prevail through his people in a time of exile? Firstly, they were faithful to the word of God. Point number one. How did they flourish in exile? How do we flourish in exile? We can take from their book that faithfulness to the word of God saw them through. And we're not going to go there now, but fun fact, Daniel, as in the book of Daniel, the story of a man who we know refused to bow to a foreign god, who refused to assimilate, who refused to take up some kind of assumed power and who didn't go into hiding nor whinge or complain, he was a recipient, an actual recipient of this letter 
from Jeremiah. I mean, go and read the book of Daniel. Daniel was a recipient, the one of the ones in Babylon who literally had the letter from Jeremiah informing him how he needed to live in exile. Daniel was an exile in Babylon. What we see of Daniel is that he was a man who was faithful to the word of God until the very end. He was uncompromising. He was resolute. He held tightly to the ancient word of God. I mean, albeit that it landed him in a fiery furnace and a den full of hungry lions, but hey, let's embrace the adventure of faith in Jesus. I mean, in a world that demands our attention, that asks for our subscription on every page we navigate to, asks for us to subscribe to every channel and to every streaming service, we are to be people who subscribe, in fact, more than that, who hunger and thirst for the truth of God's Word. For the instruction of God's Word, for the revelation of God's Word, for the promotion of God's Word, and the teaching of God's Word for the impartation of God's word to the next generation. Because church, unless we disciple each other, unless we disciple our kids and our young people, unless we disciple our neighbor and our friends in the word of God, we will see a generation adrift on the sea of ankle deep conviction drifting into compromise and into a retraction of missional potency in our day. And you would agree that that is not where we want to end up. I want to suggest to you that the exiles in Babylon saw the kingdom of God come and continue to come in power through an unwavering commitment to the proliferation of God's word in and through their community. God's kingdom prevailed through their commitment to discipling one another and the generations that came in the word and the ways of God. They were faithful to the word of God for those 70 years. As every wind blew their way to take them out, as everything that would try and distract them, cause them to assimilate, want them to, the urge to fight back or the urge to withdraw. No, it was faithfulness to God's word that saw them through. Secondly, what I believe saw God's kingdom continue to proliferate through a time of exile was that they were generationally minded. The gardens that they were called to plant and the fruit that they were given to eat as a result was no doubt an actual call to gardening, to planting actual seeds and watering and pruning actual plants. They were asked to actually harvest and to preserve and share and trade homegrown food for their enjoyment and for their sustenance and to be a reminder that in that place of exile that God was indeed their provider in the land. More deeply, though, this is a metaphor, if not for them, certainly for us. But sowing kingdom seed in the garden beds of this generation will produce a kingdom harvest in the generations to come. That being generationally minded ensured the kingdom of God prevailed and subversively shaped and transformed Babylon. Our kids and our youth must be our priority. 
We must hunger and thirst to see our young people and to see our kids discipled in the Word of God, to see them shaped and nurtured and empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to take up their moment, to take up their task in this world as they live as exiles in a very foreign culture, one that even I don't understand. Unless our commitment is to our children and our youth, we will not survive this exile. Maybe a big statement that undoes the providence of God. Maybe I need to think more deeply on that. Albeit, hear the value and the importance that we, church, need to place on being generationally minded that we would nurture, empower, love, serve and get alongside our kids and our youth and those who are called to lead and minister to them. Point three, and I'm going to be going quick. They contended for the welfare of their city. That these Jews living 70 years in Babylon amongst people who had literally ruined their lives. I mean, the posture that God called them to wasn't to be aggressors or be to withdraw or to assimilate, but to pray for the welfare of the city. It is only radical love that would posture itself toward the flourishing of a city that was not your own. If this empire forcibly conquered and removed the people of God from their home, destroyed their temple, the place of the presence of God, it destroyed their symbols and their artifacts that told the story of God among them. They had had their homes decimated, their favorite coffee shops taken from them, their art was destroyed, their history gone, leaving in ruins everything of their culture. I mean, the hate and vitriol that would have um, been present would have been really easy to step into and I'm sure would have been there. I mean, it would, the tension would have been palpable. But what does Jesus say on this matter? Matthew 5, 43 and 44, You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard, you've heard that said, right? Love the people who are like you and, and hate those who have done wrong to you. But he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, in a world that seems hell-bent on destroying our cities, from everything from violence and drugs to tearing apart families through gambling and addiction, domestic abuse, the destruction of our environment through pollution and overdevelopment and overconsumption, the decimation of Christian tradition and values through social and political agendas and self-interest, we are to be people who hunger and thirst for God's justice to reign in this city, for his healing hand to restore, for justice for the least and the forgotten. We must hunger and thirst for freedom, for the addict, for an end to the violence, for a ceasefire amidst the cultural wars. That they made it because they contended for the welfare of the city, especially in prayer. I mean, can I say this? We must hunger and thirst what God is already doing through Kingsway Care. I mean, housing the most vulnerable people of our community. The most at-risk people. The most abused people in our community. 
And if you saw the communications this week that went out about the uncertainty of Jacaranda Cottage due to funding, we ought to rise up or something rise up within us and say, this is not okay. Young women who are the victims of neglect and abuse and violence, who do not have a safe place to call home, is not okay. We must contend in prayer for how we love and serve and stand alongside every person and every life who is suffering. And we must hunger and thirst to see the restoration and healing of the broken systems in our nation and communities that keep people hostage to poverty, that keep people from access to education and health care, that limit options to housing. We need to contend and pray for the flourishing of our city, to confront the systems that remove people's voice and ability to be heard. We must hunger and thirst for the welfare of this city, for its flourishing, for the word tells us that in its flourishing, we will find our flourishing. And lastly, what saw them through? What was the posture of their heart in exile that saw the kingdom of God keep moving forward? They sought the presence of the Lord. So just go and listen to last week's message. People hungry and thirsty for new wells, to drink deeply of the rivers of life flowing from and within the Father's heart. Hungry and thirsty, not for the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of heaven. And so in a world that worships the gods of wealth, status, position, title, income, lifestyle, physique, comfort and security, we are to hunger and thirst for the presence of Jesus among us. I'll invite the band up. Those exiles in this world, as foreigners in this culture that we find ourselves in, we are called this year to hunger and to thirst for God's purposes in his church, for his purposes in our lives. We are to hunger and thirst that we would be a faithful presence in this world that is not our home, that we are called to be inspired by God's love to live differently. And we will do this by being people who are faithful to the Word of God. We will do this by being people who are generationally minded, thinking well beyond ourselves. We will do this by contending for the welfare of our workplaces, our sports clubs, our suburbs, our cities, our regions, and this nation. And by being people who seek the presence of Jesus. All of the time. There will be people who are hungry and thirsty in prayer. People who are hungry and thirsty to make disciples. People who are hungry and thirsty to love and to lead and to serve and train and develop our kids and our youth. And people hungry and thirsty to be engaged in local mission. 
seeking God's justice for all of mankind and all of creation. And we're going to give ourselves the month of March to be praying into these things. And we're going to speak to each of these four areas through March on prayer, on our kids and youth, on discipleship slash spiritual formation, and on local mission. And I'm calling us to all pray and to fast into these things in March. As I mentioned last week, we're going to gather on Sunday nights through March for four Sunday nights, starting on the 5th of March, 7 o'clock here in the evening, Sunday nights. And whether you're here or not, I want you to, to fast from Sunday night for four weeks on a Sunday night through to a Tuesday morning. And I want you to pray wherever you are that we would be people of prayer, that we would be people of the next generation, that we would be people who invest in the lives of our kids and youth, that we would be people who invest ourselves entirely in God's mission locally and globally, that we would would gather together and pray and fast and seek God's purposes in all of these things. So I invite you through March to uh, lean in. I hate that word. But to brace yourself, to open yourself, to be ready to receive what God has for you and for our church as we hunger and thirst for His purposes in our midst. So let me pray and we'll finish up with shout to the Lord. How about that? Very good. Um, And then we can have coffee and enjoy each other's company uh, afterward. Father, I apologize that I went over time this morning and I ask for everybody's forgiveness. But Father, I also thank you that you have spoken. And Father, as your word has been preached this morning, that you are shaping us, that you are changing us, you are encouraging us, you are causing us to be more like the people you are calling us to be in our world. For that, I make no apology for preaching too long. But Father, I pray that we would indeed hunger and thirst well beyond our comfort and well beyond the containers that we place you in and well beyond the containers we place our times of meeting together in. Father, that we would avail ourselves to your will and your way and your spirit as you move among us. So Father, I ask that your name in all of this would be glorified as we be these people in exile in this world, as we be people who are inspired by love to live differently that we would see your kingdom come, that we would see your kingdom prevail, that we would see this city and this nation prosper and flourish, and in that we too, Father, your church would flourish. In Jesus' name, amen.